Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Captain Kevin Squires. Mr. Squires is an independent fisheries and community consultant here in Mi'kma'ki, or Nova Scotia, specifically in Big Brador. Affectionately referred to as the Philosopher, a term coined, I believe, by his daughter, Mr. Squires has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy as well as a Master's degree in Marine Affairs. In addition to compiling and analyzing community-based fisheries and local development data, Mr. Squires is also a co-owner of Lakeview Boats, a commercial fishing vessel construction, repair, and rebuilding business. Finally, Mr. Squires has over 45 years of commercial fishing experience as an owner-operator and has served as the president of the Maritime Fishermen's Union, Cape Breton Local. With a host of peer-reviewed publications, decades of fishing experience, and a record of community-based research, outreach, and development initiatives under his belt, Captain Squires truly is an embodiment of interdisciplinarity in fishery science and management, and we're lucky to have him with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Squires, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me. It's wonderful to have you as a guest. Thanks, Reed. And I, sh- I hate to start by correcting you, but I think I've got one peer-reviewed publication that I really was active in, but a host sounds quite wonderful. <laughs> so first off, I'm wondering if you can maybe expand on the brief and no doubt lacking intro that I've given here. Could you tell us a bit more about your involvement in your community and the work that you do in addition to lobster fishing? Uh, these days, it's uh, in- increasingly just lobster fishing as I age and, and we have fewer options. I used to fish mackerel well into the fall. That was the prime thing we did after the season also to fish various species a bit of ground fish um, when well before the moratorium fished uh, scallops as well um, various forms of uh, of netting for herring and mackerel gaspero and for a while i was um, an owner of a crab snow crab share which was that was the subject of the paper that i did have have published was how that uh how that sharing of um, an expanding resource came about and sort of some of the personal implications of it. And sort of, as I predicted, I was one of the people who ultimately sold their, uh, their share. Um, As far as what things I do around that, I've been involved in um, the Canadian Coast Guard Auxiliary. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, It's sort of patterned after the Royal uh, lifeboat society in great britain that sort of fishermen and pleasure boat owners around the coast are supported by an infrastructure that again is supported by the canadian coast guard that means that there's a couple of boats at most every wharf around the coast that can be called upon um, when local um, emergencies or search and rescue have, have uh, occur i've been involved in that for a number of years um, as you noted in the intro i've been president of the local and vice president of the Maritime Fishermen's Union itself. Um, over most of my fishing career, um, I've always saw that that was a very important thing for, for harvesters to be involved in an organization and try to avoid 
um, sitting back and complaining about the way things were, but try to get involved in a little bit. And then there have been things like um, at uh, DFO a number of years ago established harbor authorities at most of the wharves that they continue to to own, um, but they they uh, pass on the the local day to day management of the facilities to groups. So I've been an active participant in our harbor authority and and. Uh, Forget if I've sat as president on it, I've been a director for a number of years. It's not a lot of free time I'm hearing. You sound like a big guy. <laughs> no, it's, our, you know, our, our lobster season is only two months in total. And then you put a couple of months of preparation and, and uh, clean up afterwards. With that, in these days, um, you mentioned our boat building business as well. We no longer run that. So it's freed up time, but then it's possible I'd, or, yeah, I don't need to fill in my whole year as quite as busily as I used to. Fair enough. I'm also curious about the strictly fishing side of things. How did you find yourself as an owner operator and skippering your own lobster boat? Quite completely accidentally. Um, my uh, dad fished for a number of years, quite a number of years. He fished when he was quite young and then he was um, the captain of a local uh, ferry boat with Department of Transportation. Here for quite a number of years when a bridge was built across the Bredore Lakes and the ferry was eliminated, Dad went back fishing for some 15, 18 years, I guess. Um, and he uh, got sick and wasn't using his license. I guess that's the, the briefest way to put it. He got sick and wasn't using his license um, for a year or so. And uh, I said, well, you know, don't want to see it idle so i would use it for a year or two till he felt like going back fishing and he never got around to going back fishing and i never got around to stopping wow so as a harvester i'm really curious to hear about your thoughts on canada's export of lobster and other seafood well it's undoubtedly a huge component of our economy and i'm from <laughs> county so i grew up eating lobster and seafood do you think we're shipping too much of our seafood overseas and as a harvester would you like to see more of the food you catch staying in local communities I'd certainly like to see as much of it, you know, as much local access and local consumption as we possibly can. Um, but given the way in particular, the, I mean, lobster is the one I'm most um, familiar with, of course. It's developed as a as a luxury food mm -hmm. and the world is willing to, and, and the volume really isn't so huge. It's not like ground fish when it was available or or various pelagics or, or things. Um, we you know we've we've got great benefit out of good export markets my if i have any concern at all it's over concentration on too few markets i'd much rather um as broad an international marketing effort as as possible um you know there's there's increasing concern of about foreign ownership of uh, buying and processing capacity in this country and I think a lot of that has come on the heels of increased development of the uh, the Chinese market in particular. I'm not sure what the implications of that. Um, one of the things that's always been driven home to us over the years is that an over-reliance on one species for fishery puts you in a position where you lose um, possibilities for resilience should that, that species collapse. And similarly, if we allow one market to become too dominant in our industry for for a product lobster snow crab whatever 
um, then if that market decides to treat us differently or if that market collapses, then we're all in for a lot of pain and would be a lot better off had we kept uh, diverse um, market opportunities in the first place. So that's my biggest concern. I, I, I wish that we could market and did market um, our lobsters better across Canada. Um, but uh, um, I, I, I guess I, I, I don't really see it in terms of a food security issue, not at, at least lobster and snow crab. They're, they're, uh, our communities depend too heavily on high prices for them and have benefited greatly. And when you look around the region, you just cannot. And, and coming from Cape Breton, we have a huge number of um, examples where um, the closure of the steel and coal industries were followed by attempts to develop local economies and nothing nothing has succeeded the way the fishery has to direct um, good incomes around the coast. And I, no one I think can imagine what other opportunities we might be able to have around the coast. So it's been very important to maintain our coastal communities. And I, that's that's really an imperative. So one of my goals with this episode is to dig into how the up and coming generation of fisheries researchers and managers can make a change on the ground. And I think speaking to a harvester is a great way to start doing that. But especially someone like you who really has important roles on both sides of sort of the fishing and the research and managing sides of things. Specifically, I've heard you speak before on the tensions between fishers and management. So in our region, particularly the DFO, and I've heard words like communication and accountability arise in discussions on how people like me can help improve relationships between harvesters and managers. So I'm wondering from you as a harvester to me as a future marine manager slash fisheries or marine scientist, what would you like to see from people like me who are preparing to move into the workforce and potentially represent the government or other managing bodies in the near future? I I agree with you that the place to start is by talking to people. And I guess that's the reason um, I guess we've, we would have met in a marine management class. And I took that class a number of that, that course a number of years ago. And, and I feel pretty responsible to keep going back as much and as long as I can, as long as people want me to show up there um, for that very reason of putting a harvester's face in front of people who might not have had um, the opportunity to meet somebody. It's so, I mean, it's a, it's a standard thing if you're speaking in front of an audience to find out who your audience is. And I've just taken that perspective is that the people who are seeking to manage, um, participate in, in fisheries, marine management should know who they're, who they're managing. Um, one of my profs made the point very clearly, very strongly is you can't manage nature and you can't manage fish, but you can manage the people who are there um, fishing and, and, and having their various effects on the environment and on nature. So you need to know who you're dealing with. It, it's very helpful to know where they come from and what drives them, um, what their limitations, what their education, what their background, what their expectations, what their plans are. Um, so, you know, that that's really the first place to start. And, and um, then the other one would be just a willingness to learn from uh, from people. I mean, what we do as harvesters is very basic science. We every day we go out, we experiment with various the gear we use, the bait, the places we go, the bait we use, how and when and where we fish our gear, where we seek stuff. And and if the experiment is successful, then we have a live a livelihood from it. Mm. If it's not successful, we don't. So we're doing basic science. We never 
we don't translate it into data the same way that, that you would when you publish a paper, but we retain the information we get every day. We try to, the best of us do, um, and, and, and turn that into, to, um, profitable, sustainable harvesting. Um, so, you know, an appreciation for that, I think is really important. And then I had another point, but I forget what it was. That <laughs> happens to me all the time. So to continue a bit along that same vein, as a president of the Maritime Fishermen's Union local and a former president you mentioned of the union as a whole, do you have any advice on communicating effectively with fishers and ensuring that they have accessible ways to make their voices heard in management decisions? I've always believed that, that it was really important to, to make a circle of communication with people that it's fine for, um, you know, there are all kinds of opportunities for consultation or input. Um, very few instances um, where beyond um, documents that sort of offer a summary or a, a, a what we heard sort of a document might get returned to people who participated in input, but explanations of how that input got translated into policy and recommendations is often lacking or it's hard to see or it requires um it requires sometimes a very generous um, um uh, analysis of what you see in front of you um, how did a number of fishery managers listen to a hundred harvesters and 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 compile the information they were given and turn that into a a um, a recommendation for upper management or for the department. And sometimes it's hard to follow that trail. And too often in the past, um, it has felt like, and a lot of harvesters have concluded, that the, the management came in with um, the answers they wanted. Off. They knew what they wanted to hear. And they basically colored um, the comments um, or, or translated the comments that were made to them in a way that that substantiated their own expectations and their desires um yeah. and so some way of demonstrating that that's not the case that the consultative the consultative process was honest and open and objective and was used um even if you know people don't have to like the conclusions but if they can see where they came from it strikes me that would be on a personal level at least i'd find that much more helpful Right. That's interesting. I like what you said about people not necessarily having to agree with the outcome, but at least understanding how it was arrived at is very important. So what you'll what you'll find if you talk to harvesters over the years and, and all of us, and it, it, it's a bit of a frustration these days in particular, that there's so much more turnover in personnel mm. that in, in the old days. And I can speak about the old days, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know, you'd have various managers who were in place for a long period of time and you got to know them and you got you developed some confidence um, that what they were talking about and what they were doing was based on some significant experience and knowledge of the industry. Yeah. Um, and these days we are increasingly finding people um, in senior management positions who have come from departments completely um, distant from the coast, the Atlantic or the Pacific coast, perhaps, or from the fishery itself coming from very different departments. And it's difficult they, you know, they might be really fine people, very competent, intelligent, um, interested, uh, inquisitive. Um, but it's harder to 
give them the the, the credibility that that's perhaps they sometimes deserve just because we don't know that they are as familiar with the industry as we would hope or the people have been in the past. So that's sort of a, a difficulty. Absolutely. So there have been some particularly controversial opinions of certain fishery scientists emerging lately, basically imploring those who care about the ocean and sustainability initiatives to refrain from consuming seafood. There's a 2018 paper called Evaluating and Implementing Social Ecological Systems, a Comprehensive Approach to Sustainable Fisheries. And I'm curious, after reading about the ecological, economic, social and governance components of sustainable fisheries, about your opinion on how to maintain sustainable fisheries, given your experience as a harvester, because I'm of the school that a solution to any sort of stock depletion crisis right now is to not implore the globe to stop consuming seafood. I don't think that's a feasible solution to this issue. That's a question. Had I, if I had the answer to, I would all be better off, I guess, if I could come up with a way to sustainably fish. Um, I've, despite the fact that I have benefited from um, the the transferable quota system, that's always been a bit of a a a, a bugaboo to me, because I I. I think that we really we have to continue to have sustainable communities and the the the, the best organizations that I've become from come to know over the years and the ones that 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 that, that, that appeal to the fishing industry and um, were able to bridge the gap between trying to protect the resource and and um, and protect protect the fishery and the people who depend on it is, are those organizations who took a community perspective to their sustainability initiative initiatives. Um, so, so that has the, the I, I started that this out by saying about, about ITQs is that, you know, in, in my own case, I can speak about having, uh, it was fairly predictable what would happen ultimately with the, with snow crab quota shares that we, um, came to own is that they would eventually um, be purchased by some well-heeled organization somewhere else. That was quite completely predictable, and it's happened over and over and over again in our in our various fisheries. And what the arguments have been made, and some some very strong environmental organizations really support the idea of catch shares and and quota-based management, and it, it it makes sense from one point of view, but what it the point of view where it doesn't make sense is where you lose the possibility for community benefit. And the anybody standing back and watching a group of fishermen who happen to own a quota, sell it out from underneath the community that has depended upon it for a number of years, um, don't learn a really good lesson about taking care of their community or taking care of the resource the community depends on and all that kind of stuff. So it, it sends a bad, it, it, it's it's a logical um, um, system for a lot of reasons, but it's also very predictable, the downsides that happen with it. So that, that's been problematic because I think we have to have communities that, that, that rely on the fishery and get to know the fishery um, and feel that it's their own as opposed to the individual or the individual company getting to consider it to be their own piece of property. That whole idea of property um, is, is and property rights is, is quite problematic in terms of someone's personal attitude. That that's a bit of an issue. Um, I, in the in you know it's sort of tying back a little bit to questions around participation in organizations. One of our mm-hmm. 
I mentioned before, I'm part of the Maritime Fishermen's Union. One of our sister organizations is the the uh, Food, Fish, and Allied Workers Union in Newfoundland, and they have s s tried and worked, and I'm not sure exactly of all the details, but they've worked very hard at keeping the transferability sec piece out of their quota-based management. It makes perfect sense to assess biomasses and, and determine how and how much you're going to fish and make sure the resource isn't prosecuted overly. Um, but within that, they have avoided giving any individual um, um, ownership of a particular piece of it. If you're there, if you're licensed and prepared, um, you can go and fish your share of the quota that's there for everybody to fish. And it can be um, shared out on a, on a basis um, over the period of year that everybody gets a fair chance at it. But at the end of your career, you don't go off somewhere else. You don't go off to Florida and, and sell your quota and say, good for me. Or or worse, you don't keep ownership of your quota and let somebody else fish it and you take the benefit. Um, that's where we've really seen um, loss of, of income and benefit to communities. And so they have set, a, I think, a very good example in trying to avoid that. Not always popular with a bunch of harvesters, um, as you can see, the people on the podcast won't see it, but I'm hardly, I'm, I'm much closer to the end of my career than the, the start of it. And so from my point of view, um, or from the point of view of an old guy like me, um, the, the greater the price that I can get for some, for quota or a license that I own, the better off I am. But does that serve the fishery and does that serve the resource and the community best? I, I would argue that it doesn't always. So we need to come up with ways as well to to make sure that people recognize that um, we as harvesters are enjoying the benefits of a community resource. And we have some level of, you know, at, at the end of my career, I need some income to retire on, but I don't need to get that or I shouldn't expect to get all of that income at the cost of a community that can continue to rely on and get benefit from this from this income, from this resource. And you're speaking of community here really segues nicely into my next question, which is sort of based on the paper that we're talking about, distribution of fishery benefits and community well-being, a review of increased access to the Eastern Nova Scotia snow crab fishery. I wanted to ask you about your thoughts regarding the intersection between healthy communities and healthy fisheries. We've both come from relatively small communities compared to some of the larger cities in the world who rely on fisheries for things like food security, livelihood, and economic stimulus. And tourism is also a large part of this. How has your research shed light on the connections between healthy communities and their local fisheries? Um, I think, unfortunately, and here I can, maybe I was, I, in some ways I was doing what I, what, what with a lot of us have accused DFO managers of doing is that, you know, I, I knew going in to looking at that research and, and setting out and, and basically what that research was, was as a, a large number of interviews with participants to, to just to get their opinions and thoughts. And it, it very much supported my own observations that um, the distribution of those snow crab quotas um, changed us as individuals. Um, and I, I had made a presentation um, when we presented our papers at the end of the research network that was the, where that paper came from, or that supported that paper, um, we were admonished to make very brief presentations to describe the paper. And so I chose to do mine with three hats. 
and I started my first hat was a sou'wester, typical of an old fish harvester, mm -hmm. and that's where I would have started. And then my second hat was a nice shiny black top hat, um, being a symbol of a business person, which is what I became when I got my snow crab quota, because now I was um, getting the benefit of something that I didn't actually fish personally. And my third hat was a straw hat that, that was symbolic of me sitting on a beach somewhere and getting the benefit of something and and not having to participate in it. And that's some of the, you know, that's very much one of my observations with, with um, uh, the community benefit um, of resource. And I'm not sure if that's quite answering your question, but it's a good way to describe my hat experience. Um, <laughs> but it, but that that those snow crab changed us as individuals and there have been papers written people have observed how the discussion around property rights and ownership um, of quota and has changed um, fish harvesters own perception and, and behaviors to some extent now we're now we're investors in a resource or in in something as opposed to this is you know i as a, we, i started by describing to you i i grew up fishing with my dad and we built our boats and and went fishing because you needed to do it it was something to do more than it was nobody ever planned to do well um you know it was it was a way to make a living for part of the year and then the rest of the year we would build boats or do carpentry work or whatever was necessary um but increasingly and then you know and I'm, I'm not i'm not condemning people for for wanting to 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 take care of their families and their communities at all but it has changed um and as people have managed to to acquire more wealth through the fishery and if when it's done on a quota based um there has been a change in attitude um so that that's certainly one of the strong observations and and the other thing that goes along with that and and um and that paper and the snow crab thing um it's just consistent with what has happened with most other quota based fisheries is that over time they get accumulated by fewer and fewer organizations and we see that in you know worldwide these days complaints about all the grocers making great piles of money as inflation goes up and it's fewer and fewer grocers and they're putting more and more pressure on the primary producers. And we have similar things within, within the fishing industry. And we've seen various examples on the East coast of, of uh, the offshore lobster was a great example. There were when it first got established eight or nine licenses and they over time got all bought up and then ultimately went down to being operated by one boat, by one company. Um, that made for a very large difference in terms of competition, um, community employment, uh, the sharing of the resource benefit and all those kinds of things. So concentration has been very problematic and the, the quota-based management system facilitates that concentration. Um, and uh, uh, again, as I mentioned, that, that, that the paper mentions that we established small companies to to own and fish our snow crab quotas. And it was quite predictable that, that they would get sold. And increasingly they are getting sold out of the community and then they simply will not come back here. 
So my next question is about accessibility to fisheries. I'm curious to hear about your opinions on how to reduce barriers to this industry for those who don't necessarily have grandfathers who bought lobster licenses for 25 cents and have to get sometimes literal million dollar loans to break into this business. That would be uh, one of the more difficult questions you've asked. Um, with as the, the organizations that I've been been part of and, and active with have have um, thought ways to make that easier for people, um, and it's 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 interesting. It doesn't always translate to something that people find acceptable um, or helpful. Um, we have worked with the Nova Scotia Fisheries Loan Board and and um, made. Um, helped organize provisions that would make it easy that it makes it easier for people to raise the capital they need. Um, but at the same time, we've also been been working on protecting owner operator and have our organizations have been successful in getting changes to the Fisheries Act that have ostensibly protected owner operator. Um, some people would say that we haven't done it soon, didn't do it soon enough, and it hasn't been effective enough. We'll wait to see, but. Some of the argument over the years has always been that um, fish buyers and processors in local communities who happen to know young harvesters coming into the business um, were traditionally uh, willing to loan money to, to new harvesters and would help them get on their feet. As licenses have became, become more expensive, um, they've had to take... Um, take guarantees on those licenses or guarantees on those loans that they didn't use to and, and hence individuals have lost access. But there is an argument that remains that that those people, um, those those companies in those communities were the best way for local people to get access to funds. Um, people were known to be good harvesters and good workers or whatever, and people were willing to take a risk on them. So it's been a real challenge, um, especially as as a bunch of us age out and perhaps we haven't had an overly successful fishing career and coming on the end now it's become more beneficial the prices have gone up we need to we don't have the luxury of of um of being able to sell your license at at a, a re more reasonable fee you just simply need the money um so it it's it's been a real dilemma um because we have that pressure of aging harvesters leaving the fishery who want a maximum return um, and people coming in who who want a reasonable uh, a reasonable access fee to it. So it's been a challenge. We've done it through, as I said, the loan boards and various institutions. Um, we've continued to work with, with DFO to, to make sure that the people who are eligible to buy are owner operators themselves, because a, a large company who's seeking to ensure supply a product and is willing to loan out a bunch of money to various people can obviously afford more than, than, uh, than individuals can. Um, so, so we've, we've tried though, in the, tried in that way to make sure that the proper people, the appropriate people who will be owner operators unencumbered by obligations to companies will be the people eligible. So that should tend to flatten the market a little bit. We're hoping, um, and finally, in some areas, DFO has been willing. Um, I'm not, it's certainly not in our area, but I've been told of some areas where um, 
um, DFO has um, sought input from local harvesters to make sure the people who are who are getting the um, seeking licenses are eligible, are residents of the area, those kinds of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So with that, that's sort of the it's that would seem to be the best we can do. Um, other than you know if 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 there if the the new changes the Fishery Act can ultimately protect owner operators, we'll see what the market can bear at that point. And if at that point, if we know what we're dealing with and not doing something that is going to help companies increase their concentration of ownership of resource, then we possibly can be looking at provisions that will develop more of an apprenticeship um, style transfer of ownership of licenses. In my case, as I, as I had or looked someday towards towards retiring um i'll need somebody to take over and neither of my kids are showing any interest in doing so so i need someone and if, if i can come up with a way of supporting some of my crew to get into the fishery and make a transition over time that makes it affordable for them and reasonable for me and if i can if i can ensure that they will be local people who will continue to be here and continue to support the industry then that'll be the way to do it it has i, I can think of one example of a friend harvester from yarmouth area who found did just that he found someone who he thought was going to be he was the, the, the perfect person to take over and it was very difficult for him to persuade dfo within their understanding of the new regulations to protect owner operator to allow the kind of deal that he came up with that, that ultimately see him saw him transfer ownership of the uh, of the license to this individual so right. you know i think i think there's a willingness to work on systems of transfer but they have to be compatible with what dfo sees as their the the application of the new regulations right so what i'm hearing is we'll all be taking cues from you two gentlemen that pioneer this new <laughs> system what if we can figure it away you know that you know when, when you talk about that kind of stuff people say well if you're so concerned just give your license to someone well that that's a great mm -hmm. idea be nice if a person could do it but if, even if you did there's no guarantee that that the license doesn't lose value just because you gave it away. It's still going to have the value. And when that person has a bad day or a bad year or a bad life situation, they sell it. Well, there's no net benefit if, if I give it away and somebody else, somebody sells it and, and makes a huge benefit. That's, it may benefit them and it may hurt me, but it doesn't improve the overall situation. And that's what we really got to look for. So as we get closer to the end of our interview here, I'm wondering if you had one message for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans or sort of the powers that be in terms of fisheries management on behalf of harvesters and of course, as the president of a Maritime Fishermen's Union Local, what would that be? Um, I think we know that, that the fishery is gonna look different in five and 10 and 15 years than it does now. It's gonna, it's gonna have different participants and different um, basis different different uh yeah it could be incredibly different we're not sure it ha if if there's something i would really like dfo to do is figure a way for to to involve the commercial industry the commercial side of the industry in discussions about how we make that transition that is the single most worrisome thing it's worrisome in terms of um, going back to you know if i if a young person came along and wanted to 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 buy my outfit um i'd have a hard time suggesting to them that it's a really good investment 
Um, mm. Because when you don't know what the rules of the game are going to be in five years, then how do you, how can you reasonably sensibly invest in it? Um, and so as, as time passes and there is no meaningful, um, helpful way for the commercial industry to be involved in discussions, helping design and implement that transition, um, we're seeing frustration grow and some, you know, really unacceptable, really horrible um, incidents um, because largely because yes, there's racism involved. There's no getting around that, but it's also people are heavily invested and they're really nervous. And mm. when people are threatened um, or feel threatened, um, it, it often brings out the worst in people. So it's been a really frustrating and difficult number of years Um people in the commercial industry not knowing where to go and there are lots of people who are very honestly and sincerely um, willing to have discussions and have input into how we make a transition that 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 where whereby we might end up with a fishery where the commercial fishery and the moderate livelihood and the food and social and ceremonial fishery can all operate cooperatively and and sustainably and 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 happily i mean i've had the good fortune of having i've fished a, a very pleasant and uncomplicated and um uneventful fishery fishing career um i'd love to for everybody else to to enjoy that benefit but we need to have the industry involved and so that that has that's been a single very very difficult situation for us to to know that changes are developing and being made and being contemplated and after 20 or 30 years or more of trying to develop good um, systems of co-management and participatory management and getting used to the consultative processes and all the input opportunities that we have and then to come upon one that that could potentially make more changes to our fishery than any other has and then have no input other than to sit back and and uh, and hope for the best. That's really difficult for people. Absolutely. Thank you for that reflection. And well, unfortunately, I'm not quite in the market for a lobster boat license and a few hundred traps. My last question for you is, do you need a deckhand at any point this season? Because I don't get seasick. I'm not afraid of hard work. Well, it just so just so happens I need I need Amazing. one very seriously. <laughs> problem is that we start painting buoys on monday so uh, that may be but if you're if you're interested in coming down get in touch will do perfect so the toughest part is over you have successfully run the gauntlet of my questions now we get to hear your final five so this is a group of five final questions that each guest who joins us here on the fisheries podcast get asked so starting off hopefully nice and easy what is your favorite fish that's a real easy one i like lump lump fish Nice. Yes, I remember talking about lumpfish in your lecture. By far my favorite fish. <laughs> Very cute. And what is your favorite memory from your career so far? There's a ton of them. I've been, uh, yeah, every, every, uh, I can say every new boat, I've, because I've built boats, I've had the good luck, good fortune to have a bunch of, a bunch of uh, new boats for myself. And so every time you launch a new boat, it's exciting and scary and all that kind of stuff and really satisfying at the same time. But the other one I've had been very, very fortunate to to have had my wife just walk by in the background here. She continues to fish with me 
as we particularly collecting data these days of various studies we're involved in. Um, she comes out part-time with us these days. Um, my daughter has fished with me on a full-time basis, and she, my wife did as well when she was pregnant with her kids. And uh, my son and my nephew have all fished with me over the years, and it's been a really nice thing to, uh, you know, no specific memory, but consider myself pretty privileged to have had been able to have a, an enterprise that that employed and you could work with your family very nice so if you weren't a lobster fisherman what would your dream job be you know i figured that out the other day and now i forget what it was um <laughs> i i uh <laughs> actually yes i know what it was it was uh i do like building things mm -hmm. and um had I been able to do that, had I been successful in doing calculus in my first try at university back in the 70s, perhaps I would have ended up in engineering. Um, but uh, I couldn't do the math. So <laughs> if, if, you, if we can figure a way for me to build things, it could be big things or small things, and, and, uh, and without doing too much math, well, I like building boats, houses. And what angles. It's not important. Yeah. <laughs> So if funding and grants and such were not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? I would really like to, to get back um, in some direct involvement in research projects that helped, helped harvesters gain um, a greater understanding and appreciation for the scientific side of um of fisheries management. Um, we're all, we're really good at blaming or getting frustrated with various people who show up in DFO. But as when I look at or think about the boat that I started fishing with in 76 and the boat I have now, and mine is not terribly well advanced, but you can, you load. We have always as an industry been willing and able to adopt the newest technology if it's going to be beneficial beneficial to us. What we haven't always done is um, also embrace some other aspects of our industry. Um, I don't know, don't know if you're familiar with the Lobster Council of Canada, but it, it's been an attempt to 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 marshal the forces of every section of the industry to support marketing. Um, of the industry and, and there's been a fair bit of resistance from within the harvesting sector similarly we see all kinds of examples and this goes back to the research part all kinds of examples of uh, of people getting frustrated with scientists and how scientists do their work without really understanding it i think it would be a really good project to 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 work on helping on things that would help harvesters understand the importance of uh, fishery science, how it works, how it applies to them, and just help bring up our own educational um, um, uh, perspective on on where how research supports our industry. That sounds wonderful. I couldn't agree more. And finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners of the podcast to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? I think you know the, the a takeaway that that I've I've wanted more for my peers in the industry that, that that's the thing that comes to mind for me is that you know we we're very fortunate to benefit from access to the resource that we have um, but with that comes some responsibility and I think and, and perhaps that then that is a takeaway for the audience um, is that you know there is a sense of responsibility 
um, that a lot of harvesters feel towards the resource to to sharing it, to maintaining it, to protecting it, and it's not all driven by complete greed and in, and 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 personal need. Um, a lot of it's caring for the resource itself. I think we have to really recognize that 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 that, that responsibility um, is a fair and reasonable thing, and that and it, that it does exist, and we have to figure out ways to to maintain it. So, Mr. Squires, thank you for joining me on the Fisheries Podcast today. It was a pleasure to hear you speak about all the amazing projects that you've worked on and your unique perspective regarding fisheries science and management. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? Uh, I leave the wharf at uh, about 4 o'clock every morning between May and July. Perfect. I can provide my contact information or I'll, I can get through the uh, podcast perhaps I did the simple thing is I'll give you my email address to or you have my email address and feel free to distribute that if people want to get in touch sounds amazing thank you so if you'd like to get a hold of me and I guess by extension Kevin Squires you can find us on Twitter Facebook or Instagram at fisheries pod or old-fashioned email through feedback at the fisheries podcast.com I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merchandise available on Teespring. I'm Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, with ocean access comes stewardship responsibility.